welcome to the Bankster Podcast. My name is Alexander Badgett, and I'll be your host today. This is episode number one, Show No Signs of Panic. Every week, we dive into the intricate world of central banking. I summarize the latest news and events, catching you up on all things Federal Reserve and monetary policy from around the world. Then I take a more in-depth look into a historical event or person that helped shape what central banking is today. On this episode, we'll talk about an experience that Mariner Eccles had as a banker in Utah before he became the seventh chairman of the Federal Reserve. But first, let's catch you up on what happened this week in the Central Verse. And as an aside, because this is the first episode, no, Central Verse is not a real word. At least not yet. But it's one that I've made up to describe the deep, fascinating, ever-changing, and incredibly consequential world of central bankers and the economies they attempt to support. I'll start the podcast with pretty simple terms and definitions, and then build upon that foundation as time goes on. So let's dive into the news. And first, we're going to start with a very important number in the central verse. This past Friday, At about 8.31 a.m. Eastern Time, my phone began to light up. Over the next 10 minutes or so, I got separate notifications from CNN, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Economist magazine. An unnecessarily high quantity of push feeds I have set up. That on this occasion, we're actually sharing one simple piece of information. See, at 8.30 a.m. on the first Friday of every month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases their monthly employment situation report. This is a 39-page report filled with interesting charts, graphs, and tables. Really, they are quite interesting. However, it is almost universally summarized by one number, the national unemployment rate, which Congress tells the Fed they need to maximize. Or in other words, keep as many people working as is sustainable. So all of those notifications on my phone this time were informing me that the number was 5%. This number means for every 1,000 people in the labor force, there are 50 that are looking for a job and haven't found one. In later episodes, we will dive into the significance and intricacies of this number. But for today, we'll leave it at that. Most market players and central bankers received the number relatively positively, even though it was a slight uptick from last month's 4.9%. Think of it this way. In our 1,000 people labor force example, last month, 49 people were looking for a job. This month, there were 50 that were looking for a job. Instead of thinking of this extra person as someone who lost their job, Central bankers and market players, they read more of that 39-page report and found that most likely this extra person is someone who was depressed, sitting on their couch, and not looking for a job in February. But in March, they saw it strengthen and they got off the couch and they started looking for a job. Now, they still haven't found a job yet, but they believe they can find one. So they are now in the labor force again. Central bankers wield an incredible amount of power over the economy. However, they are limited in the number of tools that they have. The foundational and textbook tool is the ability to signal to the market what interest rates should be, or at least which direction they should be moving. 
In the United States, every six weeks, a council convenes in the Eccles Building. And yes, that is the very Eccles, Mariner Eccles, that we will learn about later in this episode. Um, But at this meeting, the 12 bank presidents and the seven governors from the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System gather to discuss the condition of the national economy. Then a select number of them, and more on that later, they cast a simple vote. What to do with interest rates? Should we raise them? Should we lower them? Or should we leave them unchanged? So given that limited function, what are some other options that central bankers have to progress their ideas or to influence the economy? Well, one way is by giving public speeches. The 12 presidents and seven governors frequently speak about their views and opinions about the economy. This is a way for them to let the markets and policymakers know where they stand, what their next council vote might look like, and what they think the Fed should do in the future to foster a healthy economy. This week, we heard from a number of officials. In just the seven days I'm covering in this episode, March 30th through April 6th, we heard from the presidents of the Feds in Boston, New York, Cleveland, Chicago, and St. Louis. Almost half of them. With the high quantity of speeches being given, I won't go through each of them or even mention the speeches every week. However, I will keep you up to date if the spirit or the direction of the content of these speeches changes in any significant way. This week, there was a slight shift towards accommodative monetary policy, which for now, don't worry if you don't understand it, we're going to crudely define accommodative monetary policy as someone that wants to keep interest rates lower for longer. For example, Loretta Mester, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, said that she viewed the pace at which they will raise interest rates as, quote, slightly more gradual than the path I foresaw in December, close quote. And similarly, Charlie Evans, president of the Chicago Fed, said, quote, Currently, I believe it will be appropriate to make two more rate hikes this year and then follow a very gradual path of rate increases thereafter. Close quote. These were two of the biggest voices of the week, suggesting that the council that sets interest rates make gradual increases this year. A subtle but important shift. As the podcast continues, you'll quickly learn that the Fed talks a lot about interest rates. Simply put, interest rates have a large impact on the two goals that Congress told the Fed they are to shoot for. One being to maximize employment, and two, to keep prices stable. Lots more on those goals to come. And now that we've covered the new unemployment numbers and the slight shift in the monetary policy outlook for a few leaders of the Centralverse, we're now going to dial the clocks back. We're going to 1931. The setting, Utah to a classic scene of the Great Depression, the eve of a bank run. Mariner Eccles, the oldest son of an immigrant family, was born in 1890. He was raised on the awe-inspiring western foothills of the Rocky Mountains in the small town of Logan, Utah, six years before Utah actually became a state. Although his father had come from an impoverished family in Scotland, he had achieved the American dream and was quite wealthy and owned a number of businesses. However, not wanting his children to, quote, 
grow up in idleness, or acquire a taste for easy living. Eccles' father sent him to work in one of his lumber yards at eight years of age to, quote, carry his weight in boxes, where he would be paid the rate of five cents an hour for ten hours' work, close quote. His father not only wanted him to learn the lessons of a hard day's work, but he wanted Eccles to learn a business mind. In his autobiography, Beckoning Frontiers, Eccles says, quote, When I held in my hands the first 50 cents for a day's labor, my father offered a plan whereby I could be taught to follow in his footsteps and become a capitalist by curtailing the consumption of my current income. At the outset of that first summer, he said that if I saved my money until I had $100, he would sell me one share of Oregon Lumber Company stock. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine being too inspired at the age of eight by the prospect of lifting boxes for 10 hours a day so that I could buy stock in a lumber company. But Eccles stuck it through. And after three summers worth of work, he had earned enough to buy that stock and become, in the words of his father, a capitalist. Eccles' business aptitude would be put to the test sooner than he expected, unfortunately. Shortly after returning from serving a two-year, two-month mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, his father passed away suddenly. Eccles took substantial control of his father's businesses and quickly expanded into a wide range of industries across the West, and all this while still in his 20s. Within the next decade, his financial prowess had expanded into the creation of the first bank holding company, which owned and operated 15 banks in the Intermountain West. Now, if you've followed any of the dates of Eccles' life so far, you'll see that he is unknowingly approaching what is about to become a very dark chapter of American history, the Great Depression. The shockwaves of the stock market's collapse on the East Coast reverberated across the country, and fear was spreading across communities in Utah. And this is where Eccles finds himself, on the eve of what he knows will be a terrible day for his banks in the state. It was Sunday, and Eccles had watched as a number of banks in the state had closed due to bank runs by depositors the previous week, including the old and highly regarded Ogden State Bank. If you've seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you can picture the scene where the townspeople crowd into Jimmy Stewart's bank, the fear in their eyes, and they demand their money back immediately. Eccles was informed that the Ogden State Bank would not be opening for business the following day, and he could expect to see a crowd at his bank the following morning. Eccles' banking know-how would soon be put to the ultimate test. And you'll see how important the central bank is in times of stress like these. But first a side note. See, to be honest, I think the words depression and recession, they actually miss out on one of the fundamental characteristics of an economic downturn. And that's why I prefer the term panic, because that is really what is happening. People that heard that Jimmy Stewart's bank was going to close temporarily panicked and wanted to pull out all of their money which would have certainly caused the actual failure of his bank. Similarly, in 2007 and 2008, it was fear in the short-term interbank lending market that led to a wider collapse in the economy. 
Now, this isn't to say that some of the fear isn't justified, but what we do see over and over again is that fear is contagious and justified doubt about the health of bad institutions quickly spills over into unjustified doubt about healthy institutions. And it becomes very difficult to know who's healthy and who isn't. But that is one of the very jobs of a central bank, to lend to those that are healthy in the long run, but are in trouble in the moment because of the general panic of the day. Okay, enough of the side note. Let's go back to 1931 and see what Eccles is going to do about the bank run he now knows is coming. Early on Monday morning, he gathers the employees of the bank together and says, quote, If you want to keep this bank open, you must do your part. Go about your business as though nothing unusual was happening. Smile, be pleasant, talk about the weather. Show no signs of panic. Close quote. See, Eccles understood that in order to save his bank, that was fundamentally strong, he was going to have to change the fear and panic that his customers felt into feelings of calm and trust. His first strategy at accomplishing this was to slow the bank's activity way down. He admitted, quote, We can't break this run today. The best we can do is slow it down. And then he told his employees, In the past, you did not have to look up signatures, but today, when they come, you are going to look up every signature card. When you pay out, don't use any big bills. Pay out in fives and tens and count slowly. Close quote. And that's what he did. But shortly before three o'clock in the afternoon, the time at which the bank was supposed to close, Eccles gathered with the other leaders of the bank. The implementation of his plan of earlier in the day had gone as hoped. Well, they had indeed paid out a minimum. However, looking around the bank, they all noted the fear and the panic was still strong as ever. And quote, the crowd in the bank was as taut as it was dense. Some people had been waiting for hours to draw out their money. They admitted that if we try to close at three, there is no telling what might happen, close quote. So they decided to switch tactics. They would not close the bank at the regular hour. In fact, they would stay open as long as was needed to satisfy the demands of the customers. Eccles' hope was that people would see this as a sign of confidence that Eccles had in his own bank. But in order to hold true to this promise, he was going to need help because truthfully, he actually didn't have enough cash to honor everyone's deposit withdrawals if they were to ask. And he couldn't borrow any money from the other remaining banks in town because they were suffering from the same crisis panic. Again, quoting from Eccles' autobiography, I'll let him describe what he did next. Quote, A call was put in to the Federal Reserve Bank in Salt Lake City to send currency to our Ogden banks as well as to all others in the First Security Corporation. Uh, that was the name of the bank holding company that Eccles owned. The armored car that brought funds to us in Ogden arrived on the scene as in the movies when the Union cavalry charges in to save all from the Indians. The guards strode through the crush inside the bank and all made way before them. 
When the deputy manager of the Federal Reserve Bank in Salt Lake City entered the, our bank, I grabbed his arm and led him through the crowd to a black and gold marble counter in the officer's section of the savings bank. Mounting the counter, I raised my hand and called for attention. Just a minute. There was silence instantly. Just a minute, I repeated. I want to make an announcement. It appears that we are having some difficulty handling our depositors with the speed to which you are accustomed. Many of you have been in line for a considerable time. I notice a lot of pushing and shoving and irritation. I just wanted to tell you that instead of closing at the usual hour of three o'clock, we have decided to stay open just as long as there is anyone who desires to withdraw his deposit or make one. Therefore, you people who have just come in, you can return later this afternoon or evening if you wish. There is no justification for the excitement or apparent panicky attitude on the part of some depositors. As all of you have seen, we have just had brought up from Salt Lake City a large amount of currency that will take care of all your requirements. There is plenty more where that came from. And if you don't believe me, I continued, I have here Morgan Kraft, one of the officers of the Federal Reserve Bank, who has just come up in an armored car. Mr. Kraft, say a few words to the folks. I pulled him up to the top of the counter. I just want to verify what Mr. Eccles has told you, he said. I want to assure you that we have brought up a lot of currency, and there is plenty more where that came from. Now listen closely to what Eccles says next, for it is the key and the first big takeaway I hope you gather about central banking's role in the world. Quote, The mood of the day was so unreasoning that men were heartened by words as meaningless as those which caused them fright. In a split instant, the faces before me relaxed in relief. The edge in all voices seemed to vanish. Some people stepped out of line and left the bank, and a happy buzz replaced the waspish one heard earlier. On Tuesday, customers came into the doorway of the bank, looked furtively around the lobby, and seeing that things were peaceful and serene, walked away. And that was the end of that run. It would be a number of years before Eccles would join the Federal Reserve and eventually serve as the seventh chairman of the board, but the lessons he would learn that fateful day would become vital to his term as leader of the Federal Reserve. Now I am not explaining every intricacy or every detail about the news or about the workings of the central verse. However, I hope that if you stick with the podcast, the world of central banking will open up and you'll realize the incredible dance that the central bankers are performing. The dance with market men and women, with policymakers, and with anyone that plays a part in this economy. Which frankly, if you're listening to this podcast, that includes you. I hope that today you picked up on the importance of the words of central bankers, whether they're prepared remarks of by today's Fed presidents or countertopped impromptu speeches by the Fed leaders of the 1930s. Central bankers have made mistakes. And unfortunately, Eccles' experience during the Great Depression with the Federal Reserve was somewhat uncommon. But whatever your thoughts about the power of the central bank, 
I hope that you will gain a deeper understanding of how it works, what it's doing, and most importantly, why it's doing it. Feel free to reach out with comments, recommendations, or questions about the Bankster podcast or the Centralverse in general. You can email me at alexander at thebanksterpodcast.com. Find me on Twitter at the handle Alex Badgett. That's A-L-E-X-B-A-G-E-H-O-T. And at my website, www.thebanksterpodcast.com, you can find a transcript of today's episode with links to all of the sources I use in creating the content. And then check back into the website over the next few weeks as it will be growing and expanding on a daily basis. You'll find it an ever more useful source for all things Centralverse. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Alexander Badgett. I dedicate this episode to Carl Castle, my first radio hero. And to all of you, my first week's audience, thanks for listening. I'm Alexander Badgett, and I'll see you next time on The Bankster Podcast.